Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Negotiation is a crucial activity in every business and therefore it is vital that you get it right. With this in mind, I'm now joined on the phone by negotiation expert Stuart Diamond. Stuart, you challenge the effectiveness of conventional negotiation techniques such as win-win, walking away and the use of power. Instead, you favour strategies that promote emotional sensitivity, the development of relationships, recognition of needs and establishment of clear goals. Why do you believe that these strategies deliver better results? We found studies that showed since about the 1990s that finding and understanding their perceptions, the pictures in their heads, creates four times as much value, twice as many deals, and each deal gets twice as much for two reasons. Number one, if you understand their perceptions, you've got a better starting point for negotiations. Number two, if you value those perceptions, they're more likely to go along with you, which means the right answer to I hate you is tell me more. The right answer to I don't like your company is what don't you like about us? And what do you like more about our competitors? It is impossible for them not to answer that question, and the answer will give you the means to persuade them. This is a much, much more competitive model that is used today with power and leverage. In fact, Google, where I teach regularly, found that for each $100 they spend learning this model, they make $30,000 back in terms of extra revenues from deals. That's a fabulous return. I suppose, Stuart, what, in your opinion, is the most effective style of negotiation? It's a style that's most pleasing to the other party. This is very situational. There is no one-size-fits-all. So what I want to do is I want to find out what will cause the other party to warm up to me. It may well be that the weakest member of my team is the best negotiator because they went to the same school as somebody on the other side. The problem with negotiations, as they've historically been taught, is there's not enough information collected about the parties in the situation. So the most important thing I've got to ask in a negotiation is, who are these other people? And if I connect with them in some way or find the person to connect with them, they're more likely to do a deal with me. Most people say that this is obvious and it's common sense. And I tend to refer people to Mark Twain, who said that common sense is not all that common. Uh, Stuart, is there a standard process that can be applied to this? And what is it? Yes, I have a process that takes 20, it's 20 questions you ask on how to prepare for a negotiation, which I, I call the getting more process, which I developed over uh, 30 years uh, by studying 30,000 people in 50 countries. It begins with what are my goals and what's the problem beating my goals. It goes through what are the needs of the parties and perceptions. It goes through what are their standards, how do they make decisions, how are we communicating, how can how we frame things. Can we make this more incremental? Most people take too big a jump. I want to make the the progress much slower and more incremental because people think it involves less risk. There's a whole list of questions one asks, and we use it in the world's uh, most important organizations. I should mention that U.S. Special Forces, Special Ops, Green Berets, Navy SEALs are now using this around the world because they realized if they make a, a human connection with a tribal leader, the tribal leader will tell them where the bombs are buried in the road and where the enemy is, and fewer people die. And so people who use whose lives depend upon it to make these connections and use this process, and they find that it works well for them also. So from speaking to you, what you're really saying is that it all starts with very, very good research. 
very good research and human connections, particularly with those who are different. Uh, we have also found that this is very interesting. This is new research uh, that um, that cultural differences are not all that relevant in negotiations. The stereotypes people usually say, "How I'm Italian, I'm Japanese, I'm." Catholic, I'm Jewish. People around the world get their identity first from family, second from friends, third from personality, then uh, hobbies, occupation, and then stereotypes. So we both work for an engineering company. It's interesting. How is your family is a much better question. So where you are in the world. Is there more emphasis placed on perceptions or facts during a negotiation? Perceptions. The facts don't matter uh, but 10% in negotiations. If I don't like you, I'm not buying your product, even if it's better. So how people perceive other people, how people perceive the situation is is much more important. We actually um, uh, asked a group of people to write down the first thing that comes to mind when we put the word woman on the board. And about a third of the people said man. Other people said uh, litigation, wife, lover, complaining, all kinds of different car. Somebody wrote down car. And so even the same simple facts have wide variations in perceptions based upon people's upbringing, history, stress at the moment. So unless I find out what they're perceiving, uh, I'm not going to get very far. So if we disagree, what I want to know first is, what are you perceiving about this situation? And is the fear of loss fact ill greater than the desire for gain? And how can this manifest itself in a negotiation? Right. I also think that depends upon the person. I certainly think the fear of loss is important if it's a common enemy. If we both fear the loss, then we can be more collaborative and thereby produce more. But the vision of a gain is so important. For example, take a look at Obama, okay? So Obama got reelected the first time because he created an incredible vision in 2008. He still had to do something, which uh, people don't think he did enough, which is why the Republicans won in the U.S. But you have to create the vision first, and then you can, you can people will follow you along. So the vision is most important of what you can do together. If I'm the person in the negotiation with the power, how should I use it? I shouldn't. I should I should try to figure out a way to to get you to give me more. In other words, leaning on people just gets them to retaliate and doesn't get their best stuff. One of the reasons for the drop in innovation in the United States recently is because of the increasing use of power and leverage. And so therefore doesn't power doesn't work uh, in in terms of getting people to give you the most they can. A really good example is uh, negotiating with kids, for example. I don't tell my son what to do. I ask him what he thinks we should do. (laughs) And we discuss it, and then he does it. And then I trade him things I know he wants, uh, and he does the things I want him to do. What I'm hearing from you is that uh, emotion plays a fundamental role in, in any negotiation. Is it advantageous to show or to hide your emotions during a negotiation? Uh, no, it's advantageous not to have them. That's but what's we're all human, so we will have them. Yes, well, you've got to be able to control your emotions. Here's an interesting study that found that when people feel a high-stakes negotiation, whether it's world peace, a billion-dollar deal, or my kid wants an ice cream cone, they get emotional. And when they get emotional, they stop listening physiologically, they don't focus on their goals, and their judgment gets clouded. Almost every negotiation in the world begins as an emotional negotiation. So first of all, I need to give you empathy and an emotional payment like a concession, an apology, 
psychology, valuing what you say, because that will calm you down enough to start listening to me. In terms of my own emotions, I need to control my emotions. A good example is you want surgeons who are dispassionate but empathetic, not, not empathetic and emotional. And so if, I, if I'm emotional, despite the fact that it's a very difficult thing to control, I'm no good to anybody. And of two of the things I do to control my own emotions is, number one, I tend to lower my expectations about how people are going to treat me. That way I'm never disappointed and I'm often pleasantly surprised. The second thing is not to take it personally. So they called you a jerk. Maybe it's not about you. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're having a bad life. Maybe if I commiserate with them, they'll open up to me and tell me things that will help me get them to do what I want. Stuart, in your book, Getting More, you referred to taking the emotional temperature and making emotional payments. What do you mean by those statements? Let me give you an example. I had a Latina woman in my class who was stopped by a white cop for going to a stop sign in Philadelphia. The white cop came over to her and started saying all these racist, illegal things like you Latinos don't belong here, take our jobs, come back where you came from. Now, she could have reported him or sued him, but she decided to give him an emotional payment and meet her goals, which was not to pay a ticket the size of my monthly rent. So she said to him, not sure right, but she said, what you're saying is very important. People should not take our jobs and they should abide by the laws. I'm here legally on a student visa. I believe in U.S. laws. I made this one mistake. Could you give me a break? And he said, sure. That's an example of valuing them, but still getting what you want by calming down their emotions. Which would have been better, saying to Putin you're a Hitler or you're right to be concerned about Russian speakers? If you want to get them to the table, number two is better than number one. That doesn't mean we have to give him a concession, but it does mean how do we get him to the table to have a conversation with the guy. That makes total sense, but how do you handle an obstinate negotiator or a bureaucratic organisation? Well, first of all, they may be obstinate or bureaucratic because they're, um, they're emotional, uh, because they have certain standards they have to uh, fulfill, because they're angry about something else. I want to, first of all, find out what's eating them. I then want to find out what their standards are. When have you actually given anybody anything? Even Hitler had somebody who loved him. So, everybody in the world has some hot button that if you find it, you can get them to do what you want. And if I can't do any of that stuff, I want to find a third party who's persuasive to them because I may be the wrong negotiator. The key determinant in most negotiations does really come back to price. How do you handle no, this? No, it does not. It does not. I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It comes back to needs. Money is only a proxy for needs. Money was invented because it got too hard to carry cows around. It's still about human needs. It's about what money can buy. Um, I had a Googler who wanted to get a multi-million dollar deal, couldn't get the deal, found out that the the client's teenage daughter was having computer problems. The guy from Google went over to the guy's house, invested half a day, tutored his daughter, fixed the computer, and got the deal. For the Googler, what's half a day for a multi-million dollar deal? For the client, I can give this deal to any any kind of, uh, of technology company. My, my daughter's learning is very important. The focus on intangible. Are, are very important in negotiation and few people use them. You know, I keep looking at the tube strikes they have every year or so in London. If, if the 
parties would just give each other some respect, they would find a much easier time getting a deal, and that's a big intangible. Now, Stuart, you mentioned technology, and technology must have had a significant impact on how negotiation has changed over the years. I suppose because traditionally, you know, negotiation was all about two people sitting around a table. How has technology impacted it? I think fewer people uh, see the whites of their eyes, and I think that means with email, uh, with other kinds of technology, you still have to make yourself a person. In an email, hi, it's been cold here. I understand you've had nice weather. About what I was talking about, I found a really good restaurant in Dublin the other day. Here's what it is in case you're ever here. And what, was, what I was running about was X. You just need a sentence or two to make yourself a person. It's got to be real. It can't be just fake. But it's got to be real. But you have to take the trouble to make yourself a human being to the other party. When they think you're a human being and not a part of a company, they're six times more likely to give you what you want. How do you know when to stop negotiating and avoid jeopardizing the outcome of the deal? Number one, when you meet your goals. Number two, when, they, when you can see that they're uncomfortable. So uh, I really tend to focus a lot on the other party, whether it's my wife or my kid or my business uh, colleagues. And if you pay attention to other people, you can tell this is about practice. Every person is different. People say, should I be harder? Should I be softer? The question is, no, you should just be yourself better. You should focus on other people and how the world is reacting to you and in being attuned to what they are, have a a firm focus on your goals, and little by little get there by giving them something in return each step of the way. So how much are you influenced by body language in the negotiation? Um... Well, somebody uh, you know, raises their fist to me, I'm influenced. But <laughs> other than that, it's very, very hard to tell whether somebody, uh, what somebody thinks by their body language. All these tells is a bunch of malarkey. You need to be in a laboratory with somebody to measure their eye dilation and skin temperature to really tell, for example, where the lying or telling the truth. I, what I want to do is I want to find out what people are feeling and thinking. And if I don't know, I'm going to ask. I'm going to say, do you feel like X? You seem to be uncomfortable, are you? And in fact, they may be uncomfortable, but about the last negotiation they had, not me. So I'm continually asking questions about who they are and how they're feeling. And, and my model talks a lot about having a firm grasp of the obvious. Watch kids negotiate. I'm tired, I'm hungry, uh, we're not getting along. That's a very good model. We solved the 19, 2008 writer's strike in Hollywood by telling the, stu- the uh, writers to go to the studio heads, ask them if they were happy. What percentage of an overall negotiation should we spend listening? Um, uh, as, as much as you need or as little as you need to understand who they are and how to persuade them. It might be 5%. It might be 95%. It depends on how long their sentences are. No size fits all. It's a, it's a model of saying, who is this person? What do I want? And what do I trade them? Stuart, is it possible to negotiate with the public sector and how so? Uh, Well, here's an interesting thing. There is no public sector ready for negotiating. They're just a bunch of people. So is it possible to negotiate with somebody in the public sector? Yes. Every person is different. How would you like it if somebody said, I'm negotiating with you, you're the journalist? No, you're not. You're a person. And so, therefore, it is possible to negotiate with other people by finding out who they are, no matter what their job happens to be, as long as I focus on who the other person is. I suppose the reason I'm asking that is because 
they're working within a bureaucratic organisation. They're working to rule books in a much tighter way, let's say, than people in the private sector are. How does that influence and impact the negotiation? They have constraints. They have standards. Given any standard or constraint that they might put up, I can find out some, find some person or some party that will give me something that satisfies their needs. So the, the government has, in fact, given things to people under what circumstances. That's what I want to know. I don't want to focus on what they can't do. I want to focus on what they can do, and I want to ask their advice. And if they like me, if they think I'm respectful, if I'm not blaming them for things, they'll give me advice on how to persuade them. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.